Hi, Ivan, how are you doing? Uh, I'm good today. How are you, Natalie? Good, good. This is recorded at uh, almost the weekend or midweek, so I'm uh, in almost weekend uh, mood, so that's uh, nice. I wonder what day will we choose for releasing the podcast and so on? Yeah, it's a good question. That's true. It's almost the weekend. Uh, it's a pretty, pretty. I feel pretty good about that. It's been, uh, it's been a long week. So, uh, As very the name says, Captain, back. it's Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, still, right? Still. <laughs> Half behind us. Uh, but any, in any case, I'm very happy to be back with you to talk about uh, artificial intelligence and cybersecurity. So what, what are, do we have in store today? Something that might be close to your heart in the world of security, reverse engineering. Oh, amazing. Yes. So what, what is that? Okay, so reverse engineering is one sub-specialization of cybersecurity, and it entails uh, figuring out exactly what a program is doing, uh, even though you might not have access to its source code. So there aren't many ways to go about that. Uh, you can either drop a program in a control environment where everything is monitored, so some kind of virtual machine where all the system calls uh, API call, et cetera, are monitored, and then you get a list of all the things that the given program did on machine. This is what we call the uh, black box uh, approach. Uh, but the one that uh, I think we will be talking about a little more today, although now that I'm saying it, I'm not so sure, uh, is the black box approach, which means that you don't execute a program, but instead you look at the assembly instructions contained in the program, by which I mean all the instructions that the program is sending out to the CPU in the course of its execution. And then you read those instructions and from there figure out what the program is attempting to do just by looking at what it's asking the CPU to do in its, set, in its stead. So assembly is the only language that the, all the softwares will ever use to speak, regardless of the software, regardless of the CPU, it will always be using assembly. Absolutely. So there are many variants of assembly, uh, one for each specific CPU uh, architecture. So you have a, a specific assembly language for uh, x86, you have another one for x64, and then you have uh, other variants for all the architectures uh, in uh, other worlds, like uh, embedded software. So you have uh, MISP, RISC, uh, M1 from Apple. Uh, this new architecture as well. I'm assuming they have their own uh, uh, assembly instruction set as well, et cetera, et cetera. But the good thing is... So it's is, always said um, assembly and then the name of the architecture? Is this how you call an assembly flavor by the name? So you would call assembly uh, the... what, what I, you would, Assembly desi designates the uh, uh, low-level CPU language. And then mm -hmm. you wouldn't say x86 assembly or x64 assembly, you would just say, uh, oh, this is a x60, x86 or x64, or this is MISP. You would mm -hmm. just use the, uh, I guess this is not 100% rigorous, but you would just use the name of the architecture to designate the uh, assembly uh, variant as well. Mm -hmm. okay. But in, in any case, yes, uh, it's uh, kind of a specialization in the, in the field of cybersecurity because uh, not many people like to read this uh, very weird CPU language. Turns out that it's uh, a bit unnatural. It's meant for uh, chips. It's not made, made for humans. And so most humans do not like looking at this. Uh, they really, in fact, hate it with a passion, which is why the few people that tend to enjoy this or to view it at least as a funny puzzle uh, 
end up having a career in the cybersecurity field because we are looking for people who can do this because we need more uh, we need more people to, to be able to do more so. assembly be, speakers exactly so it's a, a rare and a sought after skill and when you say like a chip language then it almost uh, immediately makes you think of uh, well AI can definitely do that right it's good in catching languages or exactly. maybe more maybe less uh, than natural languages or unrelated well um, I've always defended the idea that you know, computer languages and human languages aren't so different uh, in the end like for instance the way that I tend to describe my job is I I do not think of it as a science. You know, usually the studies are divided into people who go into literary studies and people who go into scientific studies. And I've always viewed computer science as more of a literary field, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's not really about doing calculus, or sometimes a little bit, sure, but it's mostly about expressing ideas to a machine that right? is being able to think of a concept or think of a problem solution and then trying to explain that solution in a specific language to a uh, you know, computer. And to me, this, is, this skill is much closer to learning English than it is to learning math. Uh, I mean, I think we, that's the, the core idea there. The, the core skill is being able to express yourself and to learn a foreign language where you can uh, you know, elaborate on your ideas. And it's not really about being able to calculate uh, some weird uh, equation or something like this. But a lot of math is actually also not about calculating things, but about also speaking the math language and trying to prove an idea, yeah. if you will, with that language. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do recall when I was uh, studying math uh, a long time ago now, um, that was the part of math that I liked the most. I'm not sure it's, this is how it translates into English, but uh, it's called group theory and uh, vector space, all those uh, all those tools, I suppose, and I thought they were very interesting because they were about manipulating concepts mm -hmm. more than they were about uh, you know, doing this uh, tedious work of uh, uh, calculating an integral or something like this. This mm -hmm. part I did not like. But in any case, um, what I was, where I was going with this is the notion that all those AI tools that have uh, surfaced in the past uh, months and years are extremely good at understanding language, uh, right? The uh, ChatGPT uh, is the best example of how it's able to have conversations in uh, French, German, I'm sure, English, definitely. Maybe uh, Asian, language, Asian languages as well. I didn't try it, but I, I wonder if you speak to it in Japanese or Chinese. Maybe it, it does reply in a very... It does, yeah. yeah it, does, uh, it does it quite well, yeah. Exactly. So if it's able to learn Japanese... Uh, if it's able to learn French, then why would not it be able to learn C++? Now, of course, we know it's able to because Copilot, based on the same technology, is all about generating code, mm -hmm. right? So uh, we know that the, the, those language models are good at understanding and generating code. And to me, it's very obvious that they would also be good uh, at understanding assembly. It's just that we haven't played with that too much yet. Uh, mostly because at the moment we have tools already that uh, can interpret assembly and show you some sort of pseudocode that uh, is C or that's structured a bit like C. It looks like C. So the way that we usually work nowadays is we don't really read assembly directly, but what we do is we use some program like IDA Pro or Ghidra, and those tools 
they have some logic and intelligence embedded inside them where they can show you side by side the assembly and also what C code might have generated this assembly. Mm -hmm. So usually you would just work on the higher level language because it's uh, much faster. But in both cases, it turns out that you can forward uh, the output of these tools, whether it is assembly or C-like, and uh, send it to some AI model and ask it, okay, do you know what this is doing? And it, ha it, so, it so happens that the language models are kind of good at re re responding to those questions. What, what contribution could AI could have to this? I guess it's uh, it's almost unfair to ask uh, what could this do because you obviously have been thinking about this and playing around with this a little bit. So how how is AI already contributing and how much more can it contribute? So like in a, it's a direct continuation of what I was mentioning already. It's the fact that we can ask AIs to help us with reverse engineering tasks by sending them or sending language models code and asking for that code to be interpreted. So this, this used to be, as I mentioned, some very much sought after and rare skill. And now if we can offload some of it, at least to AIs, I suppose we will always need some form of human control, but if we can just offload the majority of the work to AIs, then it means that we will be able to process um, malware samples much quicker. Uh, I know that a number of people have already have also tried that to see if AIs would be good at finding vulnerabilities. Uh, we can maybe get back to this bit later because they are, these are the two applications of reverse engineering. Uh, you have on one hand understanding programs that, uh, for which you don't have access to the, court, to the source code, and usually that means viruses. And the second application is uh, also <laughs> looking for uh, looking into programs for which you do not have source code, but for the purposes of uh, looking for vulnerabilities and bugs and uh, that kind of stuff. So uh, let's go back to viruses a little bit. Being able to simplify the very hard task of understanding what a program is uh, is doing is already a huge boon for defenders, uh, I, I would argue. Uh, I've seen that recently, uh, there was a this um, video of a Microsoft tool that you uh, you sent me, uh, the presentation of this um, security copilot, I think. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they are basically bundling together AI and a cybersecurity appliance. I'm mm -hmm. not exactly sure whether it's in the EDR or endpoint solution or something like this, but in any case, they really showcased inside the video having some PowerShell scripts that was maybe obfuscated, or maybe it wasn't, but in any case, uh, they were asking the language model to explain what it was doing, and the language model did it. And that means that for everyone working in a security operation center or a CERT, uh, then you will not need to have uh, reverse engineers as much. Like Obviously, you were still, at, for now at least, you're still going to need a, a few of them for the uh, hard nut the tough nuts to crack. But it means that for all the run-of-the-mill stuff, all the generic malware, generic... Uh, the throwaway malware we mentioned last episode. Exactly. And then for all of those that might have been generated by AI as well, mm -hmm. then they will be interpreted by AIs too. It's funny. It's like the emails being, um, here's my bullet points, make it an email by AI and then parse it. So same. 
make a script, yeah, debug that script. Exactly. This is going to be, uh, I think, the very same things. AIs will generate the throwaway malware, and then AIs will analyze the throwaway malware as well. So overall, uh, we're just going to have, uh, you know, developers and uh, analysts. Uh, how how would I say it? Uh, go uh, go up one level where you know all the uh, uh, basic stuff gets taken care of by the uh, by the computers, and now we can focus on the actually interesting things. Would it be more efficient if you tell the AI to already make your throwaway malware script not in C or Python or some higher level, but just throw around some assembly commands to do this? Like you can you can make things faster, simpler, and more efficient. And same as if you you know decode the emails into just a, here's bullet points and you know let's pretend the fluff and defluff. Same for the email. Let's pretend same for the malware. Let's skip the part of making it higher level and then reversing it back to lower level. Uh, do you mean having an AI write assembly code directly, or yeah. do you mean the other way Attacking around? Attacking another computer or another AI with a assembly commands instead of using the abstraction that is a programming language. Um, I'm not sure exactly what you mean by attacking another AI, but definitely... Or another computer. I'm sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, definitely, if AIs are able to write uh, Python or Rust or Go, then they are, or should be able, at least, to write assembly directly. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm not sure exactly what the uh, uh, what the benefit from this would be, uh, because at the end of the day, uh, if you're not writing the code yourself, it doesn't really matter too much which, which language is being used, as long as it's annoying for the reverse engineer. Uh, and I'm not sure that uh, you know writing assembly directly would make a, a big difference. Now, traditionally. Not many people write assembly on their own. I, I'm aware of only a very limited number of use cases where you would want to do that. One of them is a class that I had at university. <laughs> exactly. One of them is uh, <laughs> one of them is for students. Yeah. But I mean, it's good that students know how a CPU works, I suppose. Uh, but other than this, in the professional world, then people work on embedded systems. Uh, you know, some systems that they built on their own. Uh, Usually, the creators of the chips and so on, they will still give you a C compiler, but it might not be as good as the, the GCC one or the Microsoft one. But overall, in those specific embedded systems uh, cases, uh, it might be the case that this, the compiler that you are provided with uh, is not as good as what you would do manually by hand. Or it's also possible that there is no... Uh, compiler at all, although I think that uh, such a platform would not be very commercially successful. The other uh, use case is video games. Uh, in, in, in that one, uh, developers tend to need to be extremely, uh, to write extremely efficient code. And when they identify, when they identify hotspots, then they will look at the assembly and optimize it manually uh, because you know, compilers, when they generate assembly, they tend to do it in a generic fashion. And when you are a developer and you know what you're doing, then it's possible. Uh, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's possible that you're going to be able to do a better job uh, than the compiler. And when, you know, when you are thinking about, you know, some functions that are called millions of times, uh, you know, every time a frame is generated or every time, you know, there's a, I, I don't know, some, operation that uh, that takes up that happens very often then those small optimization can actually 
uh, reap significant benefits. And uh, you know, if it's uh, if it means that that your game is going to be able to run faster on more machines, and uh, it's uh, well an effort they're willing to invest. But I mean, apart from this, apart from those very rare, very rare uh, resource critical applications. Mm -hmm. And most developers today are happy to just you know, download the whole browser and put it in their uh, application. Uh, so, you know, they're not thinking about, uh, uh, you know, CPU impact or the kind of stuff. They're just, uh, they're like, oh, well, we'll take uh, two gigabytes of RAM. Uh, probably the user can afford it. Yeah. And then they, they use a higher level language. Uh, by the way, you asked me a question earlier. Uh, I think I, I missed it. It was whether all languages ended up generating assembly. Uh, not exactly, right? If you think of C or C++, Go, Rust, all those compiled languages end up being compiled to assembly. Mm -hmm. Now, depending on which machine you compile it on, then it will generate assembly that is related to the CPU of that machine. But you also have interpreted languages such as uh, Python, uh, many others like JavaScript, mm -hmm. uh, Java as well. And for those, and it's a bit different uh, because they don't get compiled. Uh, well, they get compiled to bytecode, but not to actual assembly. Uh, so what happens for them is that there is an, a virtual machine or an engine is, that is installed on the machine. And that ends up being the program that runs your program. So if you think of Java, for instance, you have the Java virtual machine. For Python, then you would have the uh, uh, C Python interpreter and so on. And then if you were trying to reverse engineer uh, or to look at the assembly of uh, such a program, then you would be reverse engineering either uh, the Python interpreter or the Java virtual machine and so on. And you would just be looking at the logic by which each uh, bytecode instruction uh, is being interpreted mm -hmm. by the program. Mm -hmm. So there's one more layer between uh, the CPU and your, and your program. Um, but anyway, those, uh, those languages... Uh, Kind of, we kind of like them as reverse engineers because it, they usually tend out to be very easy to decompile. So if you give me a compiled Python or Java program, there are tools out there, or even .NET. It's the same for the .NET. There are tools out there that will allow me to recover the source code, right? Uh, just to to show me even with the, it might be obfuscated, but I will still have variable names. Or comments will basically be the only thing that are missing. Mm -hmm. So it's very comfortable for as a reverse engineer to look at those languages and AI can also help there as well I suppose uh, we can go one step further and just use those tools also plug them to chat GPT send out all the decompiled code or the reconstructed code mm -hmm. and ask you know the AI to explain to us exactly what it's doing yeah. so uh, what is true for uh, C like programs is even truer, I would say, for all those interpreted languages. And this is another place where, uh, well, it's kind of the same place, but this is also a, like this This whole field uh, is going to be transformed by AIs, I think, one way or another, and uh, is going to make my life so much easier. Now, at the moment, there are limitations, and the main limitation is the token limit. Mm -hmm. It's the fact that if you look at, take any project on GitHub, any like decent sized project, they will see it's composed of many source files, many functions. Uh, like there's no way that you can send the whole project to some, uh, you know, to OpenAI's API and ask it for uh, a sum up of everything in there. You will have to cut it into chunks. So it's kind of easy to do this when you have a, a project that is already split into multiple source files. Now that's uh, because there is already some sort of, I, assuming that the developer is following basic uh, 
Good practices. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it means that uh, you, if you take any source file and send it to ChatGPT and ask for uh, yeah, clarifications, assuming that the source file is not already too big to, to fit, but you will already have some, um, I, I would say, a, a, probably a reply that makes sense because all that you sent is going to be kind of the same thing. All right, it's going to maybe fill the same role in the program. Now, when you have a bigger, uh, when you have a compiled computer program, then there are no more source files or there's no more separation. You just have uh, code bundled together, uh, grouped uh, or ordered, like functions will be placed in the binary uh, by the compiler following some logic that might be entirely different from you know, the um, uh, logic of the source files. And so you cannot really split things as much. So being able to find how to split your file and how to upload everything to uh, uh, ChatGPT might be a bit more challenging. One of the approaches that I've seen here and there and that I need to experiment with is the idea of doing some recursive analysis. So at the moment, the tools that we have, uh, I got a, uh, there's a plugin that I, I wrote and that I already explained the concept. So I don't think it's worth uh, getting into, into this again, basically, you know, plugging the uh, output of these tools with ChatGPT. And every time you look at a new function, you can ask ChatGPT, okay, what does this do? So going one step further would be to do this recursively, mm -hmm. right? You start from the main function of your program, and then you go down the call tree, um, and then you start from the deepest root, the deepest leaves, and you go uh, up and up successively, uh, asking ChatGPT to explain uh, all the functions, but in context of what so far? Yeah, of uh, you know taking into account what it knows the bottom functions are doing, and every time you go up one level. Theoretically, I suppose this, I mean, it still needs, still needs to some testing. Maybe it does not work in the end, but I suspect that it, it would be uh, at least, it would be able to automate lots of the, of the work that we are doing. Like it would be able to rename all the functions, for instance, which is already a lot, uh, a lot of work uh, out of the mm -hmm. way. And it's possible that it would let the chat GPT or GPT-4 or whatever other model out there would be able to provide a good summary of what the whole program is doing. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I expect that this is going to be in the realm of the possible in the near future. Now, at the moment, uh, I think that the main obstacle for uh, people trying this out out there is the fact that when you play with this, then you're going to incur significant API costs because you know, these recursive calls uh, can generate, I, I would expect thousands, if not tens of thousands of requests. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. uh, you know, you better expect uh, to have to dish out. Uh, Put a budget limit, yeah. Yeah, 10 or $20 of every test you're making, which is uh, not insignificant. Yeah. But so surely a company like Microsoft is able to, to do the, those kind of uh, testing. Yeah, I wonder if this would be... Um... If as a, an attacker, you would want to sprinkle in some chaos by just saying, here's a code, and now insert some random functions that call each other but contribute nothing, just to help people deconstruct. Now, as a matter of fact, this is something that attackers are already doing. Well, you can automate that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they are automating it, by the way, not through AI, but this is uh, they do have some post-processing okay. uh, obfuscation tools and then they apply on their either source code or binaries mm -hmm. to make sure that they're going to be as painful as possible for us reverse engineers out there to look into. So the various things that they will be doing are adding codes 
uh, adding code that is absolutely useless. Mm -hmm. Functions are never called or functions that are called but do nothing. Mm -hmm. And if you use Go, right, you cannot put in code that's not being in use. Exactly. So thank you for that, Go compiler. <laughs> <laughs> but in the in the C world, uh, they, they will do things like this uh, on occasion. But it's it can go even further than this. Like for instance, uh, they can work on the assembly level as mm -hmm. well and make sure that every other assembly instruction, then they will uh, add a jump that moves to that goes somewhere else. And then you don't you don't have a series of instructions that is neatly following that are neatly following each other, like a, in a linear mm -hmm. fashion, like you normally would. You don't have instruction one, instruction two, instruction three, but you have instruction one, and then jump somewhere, then instruction two, and then jump somewhere else, instruction three, etc. So it's also easily doubling and even tripling the cost of uh, going such a recursive call tree, so it will be just really painfully expensive for you to use such a tool. Absolutely. So uh, those types of defenses make it very uh, like unpleasant for us to read the assembly should we decide to do so. Uh, and if you were thinking of a world where AIs are doing those types of uh, tasks for us, then absolutely. And then uh, those types of uh, offensive defenses, I would say, this type of obfuscation would create situations where the cost of analyzing a whole program uh, would skyrocket. Yeah. So... Yeah, eventually, uh, I, I guess this is something that we will find, we will see. But, you know, then again, I, I can very well imagine that we can have some smaller models that can run locally and can determine whether or not a function is actually doing something. Mm. So I fully expect that in, in, Both it's sides going of this. to kickstart mm -hmm. another cat and mouse yeah. game that is going to last forever. I'm still curious about that uh, previous question that I asked. 10 minutes ago on how uh, if doing this, if skipping all the abstractions and using the programming languages and actually doing this with straight moving around registers would be more efficient or not. I, some Something to think about later. I don't know. It doesn't have to be, no. But I mean, efficient in what sense? Do you mean that the program would, would run faster, that it would be more painful for analysts to look at? Or would it be... Would it, I mean, and what? How do you define better here? I'm still trying to find the analogy from that to the bullet points. Make it an email, and then make it back into bullet points. So here's a assembly mm. code. Make it into a C, into an, a, a like a programming language abstraction, and then back. Oh. Something is there. I'm not sure yet. It's not fully fleshed out. Honestly, assembly is uh, not a very expressive language, uh, in the sense that. These are very basic building blocks. Mm -hmm. Think of them as uh, the smallest Lego blocks you can mm -hmm. imagine. And as the bullet points of the email that I want to send, say one, two, and three. Yeah, but it would be the other way around, right? Because your higher level language would be the bullet points. It's the shorter and more understandable version of it. And the assembly is the very long and very uh, cluttered uh, version of your email. So you you would be able probably to say, um, you know, this is some this is C level code. Can you give me the corresponding assembly? Mm -hmm. Which, by the way, is a job that compilers can do very well already. So I'm, I'm not sure what the point would be, but I, I think you could do this. Uh, going the other way around, which is this is assembly code that I wrote. Show me the mm -hmm. C code that corresponds which to it. Which is the reverse engineering, basically. Yeah. Exactly. So maybe. Maybe there's a way to do to, or maybe it would work. Uh, this is something that I have not tried out yet, simply because uh, I've been fairly satisfied with the the way that the tools that I currently use are doing this operation. But I mean, maybe you know, in this specific, let's talk about Go language for a second, because I I know you're you're a very big fan of Go, 
um, as I, uh, I mentioned to you uh, previously you know, in other discussions, the Go language, when it gets compiled, turns out to be extremely different from uh, the from mm -hmm. C, right? It, it generates assembly that is super different from the C mm -hmm. language. Uh, the reasons for this, uh, I assume, is that uh, you know the Go developers uh, thought long and hard about what they wanted to do, and they really wanted to uh, do away with a number of the craft that has uh, accumulated with C and C++ over the years. So they started fresh, and they decided that they would do something more efficient, more optimized. Mm -hmm. And so they started from scratch, basically. But also with a different starting point in the sense that it's obvious that computers have many oh, yeah. processors and things like that. Absolutely. So they had many good reasons for wanting to, you know, start fresh. Uh, and I'm not criticizing this at all. Uh, what is more interesting to or more relevant to my daily job is the fact that due to those design decisions, when you compile a Go program, it does get converted to assembly, but the assembly that it generates looks nothing like traditional mm -hmm. C code. And so this means that all my super reverse engineering tools that are geared towards C, when you give them assembly that was generated from Go language, they kind of, they, they do not break as much anymore as they used to. Well, they, they used to break very badly now, not mm -hmm. so much. But when you ask those uh, decompilers to show you the corresponding uh, higher level language, then they try to generate some C mm -hmm. code. And as I'm sure you will confirm, uh, because I'm not that familiar with Go, but it's not really, C and Go are not equivalent at all, right? You cannot really go from one to the other by changing just a few things. The core concepts are actually yeah. different. One of the one of the main uh, offenders for us is the fact that Go functions can return multiple return mm -hmm. values. And so just, ha just starting from there, then, trying to represent your Go program as a C program is not possible because there's already this uh, feature out there that you cannot ever uh, represent the, with the tools that we that we have. So in this specific case, if we were to ask a language model to look at some assembly that was generated by a Go program and then you know, represent it as Go code, you know, I'm not saying that this is going to work out of the box because uh, might need some specific training, but I can 100% envision a world where this is uh, possible, especially because various AI projects have shown that translation, uh, aka moving from one language to the other, is a task that AIs are extremely good at. From sound languages, yes. From sound languages, no. I remember I was trying to get some Python yeah. code to be Go, and it was just at some point I stopped. Uh, I'm sure maybe it got better sense. And I don't know. At the time, I just felt like it was a, the, the core representation, as you say, of concepts. It's just too different. Hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. Maybe try it with GPT-4. Mm -hmm. Maybe you will this be was surprised. GPT I, I didn't do it. Oh, this was GPT-4. Okay. So, so maybe it doesn't work. At maybe the some languages are better translated than others. Yes, and also here, I think that we also need to think about the fact that we are currently using general purpose models, mm -hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. by which I mean that you use ChatGPT and you know, it can answer cooking questions, it can answer lifestyle questions, it can answer cybersecurity questions. And it's pretty decent at all of those. But what would happen if you know you were taking all the Go projects on GitHub, like 100, mm -hmm. all of them, and then you were to compile 
each and every one of them. And then if you were to do to create this data set of source code and then compile mm -hmm. function. And then if you were to train a model on those hundreds of thousands of compiled functions and original source code and have them matched with each other, I'm fairly certain that you would be able to train a model that would not be good at cooking questions, but would be extremely efficient when it comes to decompiling your yeah. code. Uh, so this is one of the research areas where I think that at the intersection of you know, AI developers and cybersecurity researchers, I mean, we kind of need to talk to each other because uh, I, I don't know how to train those models. But uh, you know, if someone wants to create a startup with me, then I think we can get rich together. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm sure some university somewhere is already training that. So it's a question just who's faster. Yeah, exactly. Or who ends up with the better results, yeah. I suppose. The one who has access to all the Go programs on GitHub is probably the answer. Exactly. But no matter what, I mean, no matter who does it in the end, I think those products are coming. Yeah, for sure. It's probably a good thing too. Like, I'm happy about that because like, I do like reverse engineering. Uh, I don't necessarily, like, I want to do it for fun. I don't want to have to do it every, every day uh, and to look at the same programs over and over again. So it's good that, you know, we can automate part of the stuff and focus on the, the really interesting parts of the yeah. job which is, I think, the analysis. So these products are coming, uh, I'm fairly certain, and they are going to change our industry. I mean, at least the reverse engineering industry. I can also imagine several other applications, like uh, I've written some code for some for the company I'm working at, and now I'm going to change it to all the different languages and see what benchmark performs the best for my requests. Like, is it does it have to be... Um, cheapest thing to run the fastest thing or whatnot uh, you know quick comparison of which language is the best instead of sending some engineers and some scouting mission and coming back with recommendations at best yeah that's uh, that's a good point oh and i just recall that earlier i mentioned the uh, other side of the coin when it comes to reverse engineering which is a uh, vulnerability mm -hmm. research uh, this is also a very promising field of research for uh, artificial intelligence now, you used to have those formal uh, checkers that would parse uh, a, whole, uh, a whole program and look for possible vulnerabilities inside of it. It would work on source code like level. static analysis tools, but for security vulnerabilities. Exactly. Yeah, there is something. Uh, I think there's a product called Codenomicon. Mm -hmm. At least there used to be one. I'm not sure what, mm -hmm. what it is now. But the idea was they would parse, they would read the, the whole source code and keep uh, track of where the variables are used, how they are initialized, uh, how they are released, et cetera, et cetera. And they would point you the possible security issues uh, that in, in your code. Now, I know that some people sent basic C programs to ChatGPT and asked it way back you know, when uh, in December when it was uh, initially released. And they would ask, you know, is there an, a vulnerability in this, uh, in this code? And if so, can you write an export mm -hmm. for it? And it it was an, another one of those ChatGPT miracles, right? You would never in a million years have imagined that it would be mm -hmm. able to do so. Now, it did not do it perfectly, but I think after one or two recommendations from the uh, uh, user uh, uh, of the, of the mm -hmm. chatbot, it was able to, well, finding the, the vulnerability was the easy part, but then it was able to write an exploit that would uh, uh, yeah. actually work, right? It was kind of very, very surprising. So, we do have uh, here some promise, 
uh, I think. Uh, I do wonder if it is going to work as well, because in a number of those programs, what is a vulnerability and what is a feature is not always clear, <laughs> right? When you have a a bug that can be when you have a functionality in your program that can be that, that is legitimate but can be exploited to, for nefarious mm. purposes, then it really depends on user intent uh, whether or not you know the request is legitimate or not. It's almost like an idea for a new tool. Here's a list of uh, behaviors or step one: list all behaviors. Step two: think how to exploit them. I think I wonder if it would work because if you take two different use cases and in one of them probably one behavior is going to be legitimate and the other, the exact same behavior, will not be. Yeah, that's why uh, you will uh, list you the behaviors for... and then ask for each one. How would you go about oh. that? So it's a two-step. Oh, right. Yes, exactly. So for each project, then you would first uh, list the uh, uh, the expected behaviors. Ah, I see. I see where you're going there. Maybe it would work, maybe. Uh, but overall, I wonder if this is going to work as much. Uh, let's put aside this uh, issue and think about the bigger one, which to me is the fact that, well, some of these, uh, a lot of these vulnerabilities tend to be uh, kind of hidden in the code and to be the consequence of various uh, moving pieces interacting mm -hmm. with each other in the various, uh, some sort of, let's call it a butterfly effect of, you know, some uh, condition somewhere and uh, causing some ripple effect somewhere else. And at the end of the day, leading to a situation in this very big state machine of your program leading to a situation where this bug happens and being well sometimes your bug is only in a single function and then i guess you could send this function to ChatGPT, and it would be maybe able to figure out uh, whether or not the uh, the function is vulnerable but if you know, for instance if you have a function that is supposed to receive data in a specific um, format, let's say, or with specific assumptions, like you know your function is going to receive a pointer, and you know for a fact that the pointer is never going to be null because this has been checked from some other function out there uh, from the caller. Let's say the caller is in charge of uh, checking this. Well, when you send this function to ChatGPT, then ChatGPT is not able to figure out uh, that this condition is already right, satisfied. Because of the context so missing. It yeah. would be a yeah. false positive. Yeah. And so to solve this, it would mean that you have to, again, send the whole context of the program, which means the whole program to ChatGPT, and you, again, bang against the wall of token limits. So you would not be able to get a whole program to be analyzed, uh, although you might need the whole program to be analyzed to figure out some of the most subtle bugs out there. I do think that eventually there will be more context, although window growing and growing, like right now it's already somewhat partially available the 32k yeah. and it will keep growing but there's also in parallel to that all sorts of optimization tools that will help you just optimize your input to make it whatever it is into less less of a size of a context so between the two of those this is a, a dated challenge but i wonder for how long absolutely this is a, one of the things i've been wondering about a lot when it comes to those ai tools the token limit is it is increasing i wonder if there is a hard limit that they can reach on this like maybe uh, in in five years they will be like we've reached uh, i don't know uh, a million tokens but uh, we can never go further because of you know complexity or cost or whatever. each model has a hard limit but m new models coming out yeah. right there was gpt3 that had a smaller limit then came gpt4 with a bigger limit and whatever future gpt will come it will have a larger technically harder limit of uh, like a maximum uh, context window. Absolutely. 
so my my wonder here, my question would be, are we ever going to reach a day where we can send, Unlimited. let's say, 200 kilobytes of code to ChatGPT? Uh, is that ever going to be possible? So like with anything with AI, I would say yes, <laughs> eventually, if we don't put any specific deadline on this. <laughs> so yeah, uh, when we do, then I think it's going to, like, when we reach the threshold of being able to fit an entire computer program, uh, let's say a, a, a of let's say a reasonable amount of code, but let's say 200 of kilobytes, for instance. The day we can send 200 of kilobytes of code into any of those models and start asking meaningful questions, I think this is going to be the day where everything changes. I have to say that I have a throw a throwback as if virtual throwback or imaginary one to that um, uh -huh. image of Bill Gates in the 80s, 90s, speaking about that every computer will have tens of kilobytes and no person will need more than that. It's going to be funny. Soon to think that we spoke about kilobytes in the context of AI. <laughs> yeah. Uh, again, uh, this is another thing that uh, is kind of both uh, very uh, fun, but also creates uh, some existential <laughs> anguish for me. Is that I have absolutely zero idea of how far this is going to go. Like I know that it was just started. Uh, you know, they say that human progress is not a linear thing, but it's mm -hmm. an exponential. And if you look at um, you know, the time it took for uh, between the men were able to uh, use fire and then use iron. It probably were uh, millions of years, I, I guess, or hundreds of mm -hmm. thousands at least. Uh, and then if you look at the, the, the time that it took between the steam engine and the internet, that it was much shorter. And so what it means to me is that we are, you know, at a very, very steep point of the curve when it comes to human progress. Yeah. And we as human beings tend to imagine or to see continuity in all things, right? We see what happened yesterday and we think tomorrow is going to be mostly the same. Uh, like take, for instance, the, I think a good example of this is the car industry. Like if you look at the way cars were 50 years ago, uh, they kind of evolved in a very um, regularly paced fashion, I would say, you know, incremental uh, modifications, they would add, uh, you know, uh, better uh, turning systems. They add, uh, uh, I don't know, the GPS in, inside. But you know, overall, if you if you were transported in time 50 years ago to today, like the cars, they wouldn't seem so different. Uh, I think when it comes to technology, uh, it's it's kind of different from this. And we, although we kind of keep the same thinking when it comes to uh, how technology progresses, even though we keep thinking, okay, it's going to be like this new edition. Okay, tomorrow we'll have 50,000 tokens, then they have to 1,000 tokens, etc. Um, I think it's also very possible that you know, there are going to be breakthrough mm -hmm. after breakthrough. And that, uh, you know, the tomorrow that uh, we are going to face is extremely entirely different from the one mm -hmm. that we're imagining and also entirely different from today. And this is like trying to imagine mm -hmm. what is coming um, is extremely uh, challenging, uh, I think. I'm trying as the best I can, but uh, outside of my very limited scope of uh, cybersecurity, and I must say that I'm always uh, falling flat. Yeah, but I guess we are, in comparison to the past, we have the advantage that most of the, let's say, future creators, if you will, the people who are the visionaries or visionaries of the companies that are doing those things, they're, you know, just sharing their thoughts on Twitter all the time. So you can at least get a tiny <laughs> yeah, glimpse it, into their true. mind more than you used to in the past. It's true. 
uh, admit when well, it's true if you admit the fact that these visionaries are the ones from whom the next breakthroughs will be coming from, which is not 100% guaranteed, right? I mean, now that the language models are out there, what, what, who's to say that there isn't going to be a 12-year-old in the basement that's going to tune, to fine-tune uh, Llama or Alpaca CPP and, you know, create the, the next sure. big thing, right? Who, who knows sure. what's going to happen? So uh, I, I do... Although, like, we can look out for uh, what the tech leaders in the industry are saying and thinking, I'm not bearing out the possibility of, uh, you know, something blowing up somewhere where you do not yeah, expect but, that. But all. even such a thing will bubble quite quickly in all the social medias, luckily. We don't need to wait for the news to report that. Like, we, you can <laughs> probably, you'll see this thing being retweeted quite fast. Yeah, I mean, I get your point, but I'm not sure that me being the first to know about it is going to make any yeah, difference. No, no to like try to imagine yeah. a future uh, where this uh, you know, technology has become completely yeah. unpredictable. For sure. But it is fun also to see what uh, some people were doing experiments of uh, here are like a hundred of the recent greatest technology um, advancements and then what are the next a hundred? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, fun let's, exercise. Let's ask uh, ChatGPT. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people were sharing such blog posts on their social media. So that there's also interesting to see but that as yeah. you say this is very much predict the next and uh, as you say it's probably going to be an, an unexpected change so yeah and what i think is a, a very important point there is that i'm seeing in the field of cybersecurity, there are so many applications that we keep discovering or thinking about uh you know even just in the course of those discussions like just talking to you i've come up with a, a few ideas um for instance in the, in the last episode uh, stuff that i could be experimenting experimenting with like you know, having a malware piloted by a uh, mm -hmm. AIC to server, I think uh, I don't kind of need to play with that, see how it works. But I see that this is already changing so much in my mm -hmm. very niche field uh, of expertise, and you know, imagining that it's very likely doing the exact same to mm -hmm. all fields in everywhere in the world, <clears throat> I think is well not concerning, but it's kind of raising alarms everywhere in my head because now. Uh, it really feels like things are going to change big time and nobody's ready for this. Uh, yeah, it's true. I guess uh, the question is, how do you want to position yourself for that? Like uh, be on the roller coaster, enjoy the ride or see how you can, uh, depending what, you, what you're aiming at. I guess being doing lots of office hours <laughs> to all sorts of people with all sorts of industries, like you say, I get to hear all sorts of ideas and all sorts of interpretations. So it's always uh, at the very least interesting, I guess. Not many of them obviously yeah, become anything fruitful at all, but even just getting those thoughts, it's always fun. Yeah, but I mean, no matter what, we are yeah. in the roller coaster, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> you may be anxious about the ride, you may be happy about it. Like, this is a matter of you know, personal disposition, I guess. But like the the ride, it has it has started, it has started big time, and we are probably you know at the very beginning of those Disney rides. You always have this uh, very Mm -hmm. Big slope when they go, they take you slowly <laughs> all the way up, uh, so you build some tension and so on, and uh, you know, <laughs> eventually, like it's going to to start speeding up. So, uh, like, I'm, I I would like to to know where this is going to lead us, uh, but it is going to lead yeah. us, that's for sure. So, if you have to make some predictions for the world of uh, reverse engineering specifically for your niche on how, um, you know, not what the next bigger engine is, but what is the next electric car. Uh, so what's the big jump kind of that if you have to 
the non-linear next development that AI brings to the field. That's the way I would phrase that. What would that be? So I think, uh, okay, this is a completely uh, speculated territory, right? Yep, yep. <laughs> let's uh, all, let's all, all agree on that. Like I'm just speaking out of my head, but uh, uh, I, I do not know uh, whether these things are going to happen or whether people are working on them, although I, I suspect they are. Uh, but I think that the uh, the next big thing in the field of cybersecurity, which is going to be, uh, again, transformed mm -hmm. uh, as a whole from, from this, those technologies, I'm pretty sure, is going to be, uh, I suppose, fully automatized stocks. Uh, because at the moment, you have uh, junior uh, and underpaid interns who are working day after day on mm -hmm. closing tickets, uh, reading out false positives and trying to check whether or not something is... Uh, uh, actually uh, a cyber attack and so on. And it feels to me like this is going to be the maybe the, the first major AI product uh, that is going so to what be is released, it gonna do? Uh, in the field of cybersecurity. It's going to be plugged to all your uh, usual mm -hmm. monitoring systems. And then it's going to probably check all those uh, mm -hmm. alerts for you and it's going to select which ones mm -hmm. are relevant which ones are possibly false positives uh, etc and i think it's going to uh, i don't want to say destroy jobs because uh, overall I, all the people that i know who are doing those jobs don't find them enjoyable at all so it's not like it's a, a big loss for uh, uh, like the, the humanity as a whole i would say uh, although I do not want to make lightly of uh, people losing their jobs, but I, I think that this is a part. Uh, this is the type of job um, that is better handled by machines when it comes to overall happiness. Uh, but I do think that uh, those socks uh, that at Why the moment socks? Uh, are being handled by humans, security, security mm -hmm. operations center. That's uh, that's what it means. And you know, you have some uh, socks in every. You have a SOC in every major mm -hmm. corporation out there, and you also have companies that offer SOC services to small mm -hmm. and medium businesses. Right? If you are a medium-sized company and you don't have the resources or the use for a dedicated SOC internally, then you would send all your logs and uh, all your monitoring data to another company out there, and that company would call you. Uh, they would give you an engineer maybe one or two days per week, and then if something happens, they'll call you and they'll mm -hmm. they handle it. And I think that... You know, you can have probably an AI SOC, which was which would be an appliance uh, set up mm -hmm. at every um, in every company, and that would do this exact job on its own. I, I think for me this this pro would be the very first. Uh, this uh, for me it would be the natural, uh, I would say, commercial uh, grade software uh, that would be released for uh, AI at the intersection mm -hmm. of AI and cybersecurity. I think that's the natural. Uh, Direction to, to go. So, a monitoring policy. system for all your yes or not incidents, unusual behaviors. Yeah, exactly. Now, the thing is, most companies they are not doing the the, the job of monitoring their own network that well, uh, especially when it comes to being able to detect when something weird is happening on your network. Uh, detecting whether I don't know there might be an attacker that is moving around and trying to look for things. If you look, then you might be able to find, but I know that uh, most companies do not have the resources or the technical expertise to have a person dedicated to this. Like this, uh, the whole idea of assuming mm -hmm. that you've been compromised and then looking for mm -hmm. evidence that it is the case, uh, which is a very good practice. But you know, also it costs money. Then you have someone that's uh, 
maybe not productive, maybe not doing anything productive most of the time, uh, but preventing a big catastrophe uh, every yeah. other year. Uh, and feels to me like this could be uh, uh, pretty much automatized. Also, in this, uh, the fact is that, well, those systems can be trained, and although every company is different, it's possible that you could set up one of those black boxes in your network, have it run for, I don't know, let's say two months, and then after two months, it's doing mm -hmm. its own learning thing. And after two months, it knows what type of mm, traffic what or what type of activity mm -hmm. is normal for the company and what is not. And I think based on this, uh, you would probably be able to get a pretty good detection system in your network to figure out what is legitimate mm -hmm. and what isn't. Now, of course, you have to assume that when you're doing this training phase, you're not yeah. already compromised, which is a kind of strong hypothesis in my book. But I do believe that products are going to be released in that very specific uh, field and that probably mm -hmm. they're going to be yeah. a good thing. Something that monitors your traffic, yeah? That um, There's so many open source tools that monitor your traffic, like all the Grafanas, right? Yeah, it's not just traffic, right? It's about activity logs. It's about, you know, uh, having a place. Um, you already have mm -hmm. those types of tools uh, at the moment, which are concentrators yeah. for all the logs. You get uh, all the VPN connections, yeah. you get all the DNS logs, you get all the HTTP uh, proxy logs, and of course, uh, uh, you know, all the uh, SMB traffic between the machines, that kind of stuff. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that they are already working on um, correlating everything and detecting bad behavior. But now that, uh, you know, the technology has uh, mm -hmm. made a significant so leap. take the same data and process it better. Yeah, exactly. And process it better and with the uh, expertise that is being developed in the field of uh, yeah. machine learning. Yeah, interesting. So... Uh... I wouldn't say this is a very um, like non-linear prediction. That it almost sounds like this is the reasonable next step. Yeah, it, it, that, that's exactly mm -hmm. what I was talking about. Like I can try to think of a same-ish tomorrow, but uh, trying to imagine the next breakthrough is uh, very difficult for me. Now, one thing I will say though, which I think is going to be a, a bit more uh, risky as a uh, uh, proposition is I do believe that AI is going to help defenders much more than it's going to help uh, attackers. Uh, I think that when it comes to detection, to classification, to analysis, uh, we are going to see huge uh, benefits in the defense field and that attackers sure are going to be able to generate more malware, maybe some phishing probes, well, all the stuff that we talked about uh, in our previous episode. But I do think that defense is going to have the bigger productivity gains, which is going to skew the balance towards defense a little bit. Uh, what, and by the way, which is something we sorely need. So uh, I'm at least optimistic about this. Okay, that um, maybe that will be the the creative prediction that uh, things are going to change for the better yeah. for the defensive side. Yeah, I, I do but, think so at okay. least. Um, well, that was interesting. I learned a lot. Yeah, uh, as always, a great discussion. Thank you, everybody who listened, and see you at the next episode. Thanks, Ivan. Yeah, thank you, Natalie, and thank you so much for everyone out there listening to us, and uh, see you next time.